Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. We are disciples of Jesus that build generational transformational disciples of Jesus. I'm Pastor Aaron, and I'm happy to be with you today as we're worshiping God. And as we do that, we're going to be in our series, uh, Following Jesus, this summer. Last week, we began our series as we started that off as to why follow Jesus, looking at the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and today we're going to continue into that and to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, because how can you be a disciple if you don't know how to follow him, and how can you follow him if you don't know where he went and what he taught? So that's what we're doing. Uh, it's very good stuff. And so uh, as we start with that, uh, let's get into our memory verse for the series, Matthew 16, 24. I've been practicing a little bit this week. Hopefully I do better today than I did last week. I hope you have done as well, but if not, don't worry. It's on the screen right here, right now. So here we go. Say it along with me. Three, two, one. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. You sound so good. Again, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. Now here's a test to see how we've done. Then Jesus said to his disciples, oh, anyone who wants to be my disciple must take up their cross and follow me, Matthew 16, 24. The devil doesn't want you to get that, but I do. So here's something. You know how he gets into computers, but it's harder for getting them on paper? That's why on your connection card, there is a Bible memory verse card. You take that off, take it with you. And by the way, since you have that out, why don't you fill it out for me? And then at the end of the message, you can drop it in the back of the church in that box. So I know you're here, and I can pray for you this week. All right, so as you saw up there, there was a map. Why is there a map? Because Jesus lived in a real time and a real space. And some people told me as they said, hey, Aaron, if we're going to be following the life of Jesus, can you put some maps in there so we know where he went? Oh, I got you covered. So <laughs> let's just get familiarized with this whole, this is what the world looked like in Jesus' day with a little less color, right? But I'm going to let's go through this map. There's a lot of big things in there. Um, but I want to show you what's there. First thing is there's several bodies of water, okay, that's going to really help you. When you look at a map, the water stays the same. Everything else changes because that's all political, but water doesn't care. So, so when you look at a map, let's find out where things were. You have the Mediterranean Sea, right? That's it's still there today. Also, it's called the Great Sea sometimes in Scripture, right? So you have the Mediterranean Sea. Then you have the Sea of Galilee, and it's really tiny in real life. I was shocked by this when we went there, because in my mind, the Sea of Galilee was like massive. No, it's like nine miles or something. You could see the other side and all that, but it's right there at the northern portion of the Holy Land, right? And then below that, you're going to have the Dead Sea, which is really big. In my mind, it should have been tiny, but it's not. It is big and ugly, and it's right there at the bottom, right? And then in between the two is the Jordan River. So you ever wonder where the River Jordan is? That's where it is. It's right between the two. And a lot of stuff happens in between those two things. Now, at the very bottom, you have the Red Sea. Of course, that's where Moses crossed in the Holy Land. That's where uh, the southern tip of the land of Israel is today. But it wasn't so back in Jesus' day. So let's talk about the land and, and the countries, the regions around it. Now, you had the Romans basically owned the world, basically. They kind of controlled a lot of stuff around it. So these are uh, kind of governments that were kind of put into power that they decided this is how we're going to divvy things up that's based upon things. So up top you have the, the Syrophoenicia, right? So with the Syrophoenician woman, you have Tyre and Sidon uh, was in that area. So 
It's where Jesus did that really cool miracle where he healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who was demon-possessed, all right? That was that area, right? Uh, so we'll, for those of you who went to Israel up there, Acre was in that area, um, is where that was at. Below that, you have Iteria, which was also uh, a tetrarchy. It was called the Tetrarchy of Philip, but I like Iteria because it's easier to say, and it's smaller, and it fits on my map. So that's where <laughs> that part is, and in that area, so you have Caesarea Philippi and things where Jesus goes, and he... Uh, Basically, his, uh, Peter gives that great um, confession of faith that happens there. Now, this was obviously not in the Holy Land proper, right? This, in this time, in Jesus' age, this was going to be Gentile-controlled territory. Then below that, you have the Decapolis, which means the ten cities. And guess what was in the Decapolis? Ten cities, but they weren't just any cities. They were ten cities the Romans built to show the world, to show these, these you know, barbaric people who lived in the Middle East you know, what a real society looks like. They were all grid-like, and they all set up, and they had these big these cardos and these big streets and all that kind of stuff, and they looked all fancy, and all these pagan worship centers and all that also, you know, stuff there. That's where those were at. And so the capitalists was, uh, was that area, and... Uh, so we see uh, some interesting happens there. You have uh, it's kind of the southeast portion of um, the Holy Land or out just outside of that. Below that, you have Nabatea or the Sinai area, and that's huge. Uh, the Nabataeans were kind of not so much present in the biblical narrative, not so as important, but uh, uh, you have obviously close to the Dead Sea. Probably Sodom and Gomorrah were in that area, or probably under the Dead Sea, I think, but somewhere in that kind of area. But um, you have... Uh, for those of you going to go to the Israel trip, you're going to go into that if you want to do that trip to Petra and you see those things, that Lydia or Jones and all that. That's that area there, not as important. Of course, then there's Egypt, and everybody knows Egypt because it's still there today and has been there for a long, long time, and that will actually come into play in today's story. Okay, so let's talk about the Holy Land itself then. You have Galilee, which is up top, right? That's the, the very northern portion of it, and uh, it's... Uh, it's right there between, uh, you have the Sea of Galilee, that's why it's called the Sea of Galilee, and then on the other side you have like this, uh, the, the Valley of Megiddo, right, which is there. On the other side of that, which would have been in the, the uh, uh, Phoenicia, Syria Phoenicia, would have been like the Mount Carmel and things like this. So that's where that sits, it's kind of a, a they call them mountains, but we would call them foothills, um, that area there. Uh, so some things that happened up there, I don't know. Oh, yeah, the Savior of the world grew up and has started his ministry, and Nazareth is in there. Then um, if you go two down, you see that other blue area, and that's the other Jewish-controlled area was Judea, right? And so that has Bethlehem and all this, and it kind of sits between the, the Great Sea, this Mediterranean, and going on the other side, you have the Dead Sea, and then up, um, also kind of runs into the Jordan River. It's in that area, and it too is kind of hilly and, and raised, uh, it's not um, sea level on the, the kind of the inland portion. Of course, the part that goes to the Dead Sea is sea level. So there you go, that's where they're. And then in between the two, there's that area called Samaria. And Samaria was kind of like not happy to be there, right? They, they didn't like the Jewish people. Jewish people didn't like them, and there they are sandwiched in between them. And it has the long history, you know, way back when the Jews got taken into captivity. You know, the, the, the Babylonians, they, they ended up taking all of the Jews, except for not all of them. They left those that were kind of more poor, didn't have, needed to work the land or whatever. And then what did they do? They filled the land with all kinds of other people who uh, were not Jewish, and that's how they kind of try to homogenize their society 
Well, the people that were in that area, in Samaria, they were still religiously kind of Jewish. They, they kept that, but then they intermarried, right? They married uh, all these foreigners that moved into their country, right? And so when the Jewish people finally came back into their land, they saw these people and they're like, well, you're not truly a child of the promise. Because remember, this was a biological tribe. And they're like, well, you're not really there. And plus, your religion is kind of... It, it's, it's still primarily Jewish, but not absolutely. And so they brought other things. So the Jewish people are like, mm, these are not fully God's people. The Samaritans were like, well, aren't you haughty, right? We don't like you. And so they didn't like each other. And so the Samaritans had their own place of worship. They didn't want to go down to the temple. They had their own, uh, their own center up there. Uh, and so there's Samaria in the middle. And then below at the very bottom, you have Idumea, which uh, we have uh, the... This kind of the Judean wilderness. Uh, Herod, uh, his family came from that area. It's not really a Jewish area, but um, it's the Judean wilderness. On the other side, which is also called the Transjordan, you have Perea. And that's an area where Jesus did ministry. And basically the third year of his ministry, we see him down there in Perea. It's on the other side. It would have been Jewish um, going all the way back to when they conquered the land. There were a couple tribes that didn't want to cross into the Holy Land, right? So they got that area. Uh, and so in Perea, you have blind Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus, all that kind of stuff happens on that side. And so they cross the Jordan, go on the other side, you have uh, uh Jericho and things like that, and then the road walk up to Jerusalem. So that's the area that we all of this story takes place in. I want you to understand this. Jesus, one of the reasons I became a Christian, because like Phil's brother, I explored other religions. I explored other things. One of the things that got me about Christianity is it's a real faith like, that's based in reality. That Jesus is not a trust me story. He's a test me story. He, these things took place in real spaces, and you're going to see that today. Now, if we're going to start with Jesus, many, uh, I remember a song that said, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. So we're going to start with the first 30 years. How about that? Because uh, there's a lot of stuff that happened in the first 30 years of Jesus' ministry. So 30 years and 30 minutes, let's go. All right. <laughs> Starts there in Nazareth. Nazareth is a little town. Uh, it's uh, west of the, uh, uh, the basically the Sea of, of Galilee. It's out there. It was uh, kind of a little town. Here's a, a pic of Nazareth in the 1800s. You can see kind of the topography. I always thought Nazareth was like flat and there were palm trees and, and stuff like No, it was it's kind of hilly and things like that. Jesus was a mountain baby. Um, that's <laughs> Nazareth. So what it looks like today, uh, a little bit different. Now, um, obviously, there's a few more people. But again, it's, it's kind of like when you drive into Boulder, right? You see the, the foothills and things like that. And you see that big old church right there in the middle? I hope so. Right? That's an important church. That's the Church of the Annunciation. Right? And so the, um, over in the Holy Land, they build churches not for congregations, but to also, also for covering up religious sites, parts that are in, uh, historically significant to our faith. Right? So if you go inside of that church, you're going to see this. And this is Mary's house. This is the place that Gabriel showed up and, gave and told Mary, Hey, Mary, I know you're... You're pure and wonderful and awesome. You are chosen by God. And, uh, you know, you're not married yet. And that's going to be important because you're going to get pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She's like, what? But she said, let it be done to me. You know where that took place? Right here. Isn't that phenomenal? And this is one of those places in the Holy Land where they say, is it absolutely, do we know this took place here? Yes, we do. It's in situ. This is a place. The angel showed up. And look how humble it was. That God came to this little tiny village on the side of a mountain to a little tiny house to meet a young woman 
and to say, I'm going to change the world through you. That just gives me shivers, right? Now, at the same time, the, the angel Gabriel's busy because he went and talked to Mary. We also went down south, and he talked to Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, and said, hey. Well, actually, he didn't talk to her, her cousin. He talked to her husband, uh, Zacchaeus, or Zacharias, who was a priest, and said, uh, your wife, I know you're a really old dude where Mary was young, and you haven't had a kid all this time, and, but you're going to have one, and he's going to be a whiz-banger, right? He's going to be an answer to prophecy, and he's going to get the way ready for the uh, Messiah. And Zechariah was like, oh, uh, yeah, how's that going to happen? And, then, and Gabriel was not as nice and said, well, you just need to be quiet for a long time until you see this happen. And then when that baby's born, name him John. And so that's what happened. And so we have Nazareth, and then you see that Mary, after she has... You know, miraculously, she's pregnant, right? And then she, she finds out that her cousin is pregnant, Elizabeth, all the way down, close south to um, kind of west, or is that west? Yeah, west of Jerusalem. So she goes, and she takes a journey, and she goes, visits her, her cousin. And so she walks all the way down here. And you know, there's two different lines. One of them is what my Bible map software says that she would take, which is right through the middle, I don't think she would have done that. I think she would have gone around the outside. So I drew that other line around the side because I think that's more accurate. And you're not going to always see that line because I got lazy later on. But she walked around the side. She went through Perea. She went down there as a pregnant young woman to go see her cousin. That's a long way. That's like 70-some miles hiking, and that's not easy territory. But she did it, and she went down there. She met with her cousin, the John the Baptist, who was inside of uh, Elizabeth's womb. When, when Mary showed up, jumped for joy, and, and it was pretty cool. Anyway, uh, Mary eventually goes back home because you can't stay with your cousin's house forever. We all know what that's like because we live in Estes Park and people come to visit us. <laughs> so she eventually went back home. John the Baptist was born. Zachariah is able to talk again. He says, name him John, right, because he doesn't want to be quiet again. And then... Mary's very, very pregnant by this point, right? And so she is going to be, she's betrothed to Joseph, which is like engagement plus, like it's serious, but they, you know, haven't consummated anything yet, but they're getting married. And then you have this guy in Rome who owns everything, Caesar Augustus, and he's like, you know what I want from people? Money. And so I want to tax the people, and the best way to tax the people is to know what people I have to tax. So he calls a census over the entire world. And so he can count his people so he could tax them. And the best way that he thought to do this was to have them go back to their ancestral homelands. Why? I don't know. But he did. And so then, Mary's got to take this same trip all the way back, this time, down to Jerusalem and into Bethlehem. And why did they go there? Because Mary and Joseph both had their ancestry came from the line of King David, which happens to fulfill a prophecy about the Messiah. And again, you'll say, hey, Aaron, that looks like a very similar path that she took before. It is. Mary walked this twice pregnant. People only give her half credit. They're like, oh, you did this when you were nine months pregnant. She did, but she also did it when she was young pregnant. Like She, she knew this. Now, Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem, and this caught me as I was doing my study on this. That's not terribly long. Like some of us like to do a five-mile hike, you know, and it's because it's summertime. We're like, oh, yeah, five-mile hike. That's kind of, you know, mid-morning kind of hike and get back, get to work and all that kind of stuff. She was nine months pregnant. The last five miles would have been kind of in the hilly, rough area and all that. I imagine that took her longer than like two hours, right? And we find out that now she's going into labor. 
right? And so she's going to get taxed. She leaves Jerusalem, which they might have stayed the night in. We don't know, but that would make sense. But they leave Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, somewhere along the line, she starts going into labor, and she walks into Bethlehem five miles away. And uh, there we go, Bethlehem. They got the hugest welcome sign of all the signs. That's how you know. <laughs> so when she gets to Bethlehem, it looks like this, except for it was older, right? But it's on the hills. It's all that kind of stuff. And those rocks and those caves matter, right? Because they show up, and all these people are there to get taxed, which means they're all in a really good mood. And all of the, the, you know, the lodging, there's no vacancy signs. None of you would know anything about that, which, of course, makes all the guests real happy. And she shows up, and she's in the labor and all this, and there's no place for her. And so the, the owner of this, this cottage, is this inn, felt bad for her and says, hey, you can, you can rent out my stall, right? You can stay there and have your baby and sleep there. And so this is what, this is what it looks like when they went down to the, uh, uh, basically to have the baby. It was a cave. Now, in my mind, when I always think of it, it's nice little uh, wooden structure. It's got a shed roof, and there's a nice little hay basket around it, and there's fresh air blowing through, and they're out under the stars, and it's romantic. And be- No, it's this. This is where the Savior of the world, or it looked like this. This is not the actual place. This is one of those caves right outside of it. This is what it would look like when they said, all right, why don't you go out to where the animals are? Let's go out to the stable, and you can have your child there. And there are massive caves out in them Bethlehem. And so this is where they came into. And you know what? This fulfills prophecy. Micah 5, 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, through you, though you are smallest among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be the ruler over Israel, who origins are from old, from ancient times. You know, this prophecy was written over 700 years before Jesus came. And it names out a couple small things. The first one is, you know, Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not a big town. It'd be like somebody... All the way back around Columbus saying, but you, Estes Park, you will, out of you will come a ruler who will rule the whole country and will lift you up into great things. That's a long time away for a little tiny town. It takes a lot of moxie to believe that little town is going to still be there for starters. But notice this, that out of this little town, says the Messiah is going to be born in this little tiny place. Right? It's going to be the Messiah, like we talked about last week. Jesus being the Messiah, the legit Messiah of God. Fulfills all the prophecies, not just this one. But get this. It also talks about that he is God, which we talked about last week. He says, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now I know that the person sitting next to you may be very, very old. But their origins aren't from ancient times. Right? That the person who would be born in this city... Even 700 years before this prophecy was given, even then would it cons- be considered ancient. The prophet was given something, I'm sure Micah was like, this makes no sense, this is crazy talk, but okay, God. And he gave this prophecy that I'm sure for him it would have been like, all right, in this little tiny nowhere Sticksville town, it's going to come a Messiah. Great, I'm good with that. And he's also God. Okay. And he gives that prophecy, and it makes no sense to anyone, because can you wrap your mind around this, that a a baby can be born who is ancient, and yet it happened. And and this is where it actually happened. This is the space. This is in that cave. That's why I showed you the picture of the cave, because Christians, we like to go into these spaces and then to make them look fancy, so they look nothing at all like they used to be. 
you know. But this is the space where, where Jesus was born. And at the center of that, there's a little tiny star, right? It's like the, the birthplace. And then the stairs to the left leave to where there's a little manger. It's not very far up there. It's like a little another little cove in this thing. And, and you could see where they did this nice little display of like where Jesus would have been in there. It's like a little stone trough. And it's just cut out into this cave wall. And the other one, the stairs, the other side go up and leave outside of the, the cave. And, you know, um, there's actually, it's a really big cave. It's huge. In fact, there's different churches have different areas. They're like, well, maybe Jesus was born in this part of it. Or maybe, who cares? He was born somewhere in here, right? But this is most likely it. But here's the thing. Other people lived in these caves. Did you know that St. Jerome actually lived in these caves? When he translated the Bible into uh, to Latin, the Vulgate, he lived in this cave. And, and there was a lot of other, I mean, it's huge. It's huge. So this is where the Savior of the world enters humanity, enters our place, our time and space, history. God shows up here. And not only that, after that happens or while this was happening, there are these shepherds out in the field and they're just doing their business, right? They're just watching sheep at night because that's what shepherds do. And all of a sudden, the sky lights up and there are angels everywhere. And they say, hey, I got good news for you. And it's going to be good news not just for you, but for everybody. The, the, the Messiah, the Savior, is born in Bethlehem. Where is that? If you take this picture, which is where that shepherd's field is, and you turn around, you see Bethlehem. It's only like a couple miles away. I mean, Bethlehem could see the field, and they could see the Bethlehem right from there. And they said, you go back there, and the Messiah is born. Now, this is awesome. This field where the shepherds were, do you know it's still being used for watching sheep today? When we were there, it was awesome. You got to see shepherds on these hills. And they'd been there for a long time. Not those particular shepherds, but shepherds have been on the field for a long time. Like, we go all the way back to David. You know, this is what the fields where David watched his sheep and learned how to throw rocks at, at, you know, things and kill them. This is where that happened. Before that, his grandparents, Boaz, Ruth, this is their fields. Still sitting there today, still being used, agrarian, but not very far away. Well, the shepherds could see this, heard the story. They're like, okay, angels. And they, and they turn around, and it's not very far away. And they f- go up, and they find Jesus in a manger, just like the angels had told. And they were excited, and they went around, they told everybody. And there was a lot of everybody, because remember, there was no room in the inn. So there's a lot of folks that say, hey, listen, our Savior's here. And the people who were there would have been ready to hear that, because they were getting ready to be taxed by a guy who called himself the son of God, savior of the world, Caesar Augustus. He put that on coins. And uh, the real savior of the world showed up that night. Now, as this is happening, God is doing some other cool things in the sky. And uh, he has some type of astrological anomaly, a sign in the stars that only wise people could tell, could distinguish, that it was meant something. And these wise men from the east see it. Now, where is east? Well, It could be Partha, Persia, or what we call Yemen, but it's uh, down south there. That's the three possible areas where the wise men came from. Why would we say that's from the east? Well, if you draw a line down from there, it's east, right? And the wise men saw this, and they said, hey, something big's going on over there. Let's go. And so they do, and they make a long journey. That's uh, 1,500 to 2,000 miles if you go just really short, probably a little bit longer. Uh, probably took them a, a good long time to make that uh, 
that journey. Obviously, that star was in the sky for a while because they saw it. This made them decide, hey, they're going to determine what it means. Then they made the journey, and once they got there, the star was still there because it led them over to where Jesus lived, which blows my mind. How does that work? It was pretty awesome, right? And they bring gifts with them, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Which, I don't know if they knew this, but it was very symbolic about what Jesus came to do, right? You have gold, he's got king, you have frankincense, he's got this, this worship, you got myrrh, this, this death that he's going to have, this uh, embalming, right? But they were also very expensive gifts, which turned out to be really good. So, uh, and we'll talk about it in a second. Now, when they showed up, they showed up into Jerusalem because they thought there's this new king that's being born. That's what they thought they saw the stars meant. So they show up, and they show up in Jerusalem, and there's King Herod there, and King Herod hears that there is this new king that's born. And these other really rich guys who have all these expensive gifts all, all across the world travel to give him something, and King Herod was a psychopath. If you know anything about King Herod, he was a psychopath. He should have been King Herod the not-so-great. He was not good. He was a bad dude. And he thinks he's all tricky. So he says to these wise men, which that first part should have clued him off this plan wasn't going to work, but he tricks these wise men. said, hey, wise men, why don't you go find out where this king is so that I can go and worship him too? Well, these wise men figured out that that was a bad idea and they were being tricked because they're wise. And so they didn't come back this way, but what they did do is they, they went out to Bethlehem. Why go to Bethlehem? Because that prophecy I showed you just a little bit earlier, the people around King Herod knew the prophecy about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. So they went to Bethlehem. They find Jesus. Where did they show up? Well, probably here. Probably wasn't in the cave any longer because that would have been a long journey. And who wants to live in a little tiny cave for months and months with a newborn? Not many. So this is a site that was found underneath a couple decades ago underneath a Byzantine church. It's a first century home that was left um, very rapidly, there was even like cooking instruments and stuff like that that were still in place and all that perfectly preserved and was underneath this church. And there's second century g- Christian graffiti under it that says that this is where they believe that Jesus was. So the early Christians and the Byzantines and all that really believe this was Jesus' first little home. And, and whether it was or not doesn't really matter, but it would have been something like this if it's not this, right? But this is very humble place for God to start growing up. Now, Jesus could have been up to two years old because we know when Herod showed up, he was like, kill all the babies two years and younger, right? He wants to kill all of them. Well, why would the place be left quickly? Because God told, uh, well, God sent uh, an angel and he tells uh, Joseph, he says, hey, you better, you know, get out of town because things are going to get bad real quick. And so Joseph gets his family, his wife and, and Jesus, and they hightail it out to Egypt really quickly, right? And that's not the right map. There we go. So there's the map. That goes all the way down into, uh, so they would have traveled, all this is probably the path that they would have taken, would have been the orange one. They left um, Bethlehem. They go into Egypt. Now Christian tradition says they stayed in Memphis. I don't know. They were somewhere in Egypt, right? But that's where Memphis is if they traveled all the way down into there. Then later on, here's the thing about people, is they die. And so do bad people, even the ones that call themselves great. So Herod the Great died and then God showed up and said, hey, it's time for you to go back into the Holy Land. You know, this actually also fulfilled other prophecy that said that God's Messiah would spend time in Egypt and would be called out of that, um, just like the people of Israel. So they leave, and where do they go? Do they go back to Bethlehem, to that little tiny shack? No, they want to go to their homeland. So they go back to Nazareth, which is in Galilee, right? And so in that time, um, Herod uh, the Great died between 1 B.C. and 1 A.D., which is 
um, depending on which historical timeline you want to go in. But that leaves Jesus, since he was born probably around 4 BC, he's between three and five years old. That's when he would have been, uh, that's about as old as he would have been. So you think about a three to five year old, and they're moving up. Now, Jesus had some brothers and sisters. Uh, he had brothers uh, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, right? And he had a, at least two sisters, because it says in the Bible he's brothers and sisters, which is plural, so there's at least two. So how many of them were born down there? Who knows, but a, a little growing family. And they moved back to Nazareth. And uh, so when they're in Nazareth, one of the things that they do, and there's not a whole lot in the text between this point. They come back, they, l- they set up shop, they, they have a, a, a family. And they, they start growing as that. Well, one of the things that they would do, we find, is that they would go down to Jerusalem, like a lot of folks would do, over Passover. And so that's what they would make, that travel, that journey that Mary would have made many times, even pregnant, right? So, this is, so they would go down, and they would go and worship the, uh, with the rest of the Jewish community and Jerusalem and have Passover there at the temple. Well, one time, and this is actually recorded in Scripture, Jesus, he's 12 years old, which is the last year you're, you're officially not a man, right? 13, you become a man, you're an adult. So his last time as a kid, right? It's the last time you find him out. He goes down to this big city, Jerusalem, the temple's there and all that, and the whole family's down there, and they celebrate Passover and all this, David's home, and then what happens is they decide to leave, and that's where that little red and green line kind of goes up, and they get to this town of Lebna, and so that's about, it's like going from here to Lyons, right? So they walk there, and they get there, and you know, 12-year-old, he's almost a man, he's probably hanging out with his buddies, what they're thinking, they get to the city, and then where's Jesus? And Mary and Joseph lost the Savior of the world, right? God trusted them with Jesus, and they lost him. And they're like, where is he? And they looked around, couldn't find him, and they're like, ah, so they go all the way back in Jerusalem. And that's like going to Denver trying to find somebody. That's hard, especially a kid. You're like, what happened? Did somebody kidnap the Messiah, right? Or what is he doing? Because normally I imagine Jesus is probably a pretty good kid. I'm just guessing. Probably the perfect kid. So this was a shock to them. Where is he? And they search and search and search. And finally, Joseph finds him. He finds him. He's in the temple. And what is he doing? He's debating the highest religious and and legal minds of the time. Right there in their own Harvard and Yale. And he's stumping them at 12 as a boy, not quite a man yet. And he was asking them questions. Their minds were blown. They were just mesmerized by him. And... Joseph and Mary are like, dude, what? Don't, don't do this. Where, why would you? And he's like, didn't you know I'd be at my father's house? And what a reminder. Can you imagine that moment? You're like, oh yeah, you're more than a boy. Well, anyway, Jesus goes back to Nazareth because he's good. And we don't see much of him after that for a little while. But we find in Micah 1.6, it says, I will send my messenger to prepare, uh, who will prepare a way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And this was a passage, obviously, 700 years before all these events took place. And it shows it's not just Jesus that the prophecy was about. Do you remember John? Right, the, the, the one that, the, this, that uh, the, the, uh, the angel shows up and says, Gabriel says, hey, listen, you're going to, Elizabeth, you're going to have this kid. Well, John was born and he grew up and he was a weird little dude. Right? And, and. He lived out in the desert, and he ate locusts and honey and, and, and all of that stuff. And he lived out where, um, I'm missing slides here. Let's go back, see if there's, there we go. There's John. 
So John the Baptist, he was born, and uh, it was prophesied all about and all this kind of stuff. And uh, there's two possible areas where he did his ministry. He became a, a, a prophet of God that the people of Israel all listened to. And they came in mass, thousands of them came down to be baptized for repentance. And he preached the Messiah is coming and you better get ready for him because he's coming back, right? He's coming here. And uh, so he would baptize them and all this. And he lived out in the wilderness and he ate locusts and honey and, and all that stuff. And where, where did he serve? Well, there's two possible places. Tradition says he was in the northern portion of just south of the Lake of Galilee, which is an area which called Yardinit. There's a city there on the other side of the river uh, called Bethany probably was where he was at. Church tradition holds that. There's a, also a southern one, which I think archaeology also points to as being a very strong position, and that would be Jordan, uh, Bethany beyond the river, Jordan. So that's another spot that he possibly could be. Both those sites happen to have baptismal places that you can be baptized, because one of those two places Jesus was baptized in. We picked the northern one because there's less pickpockets, and, uh, um, but also... I also like this northern one because it makes a whole lot of sense with Jesus' ministry. Where did he start? He started in, in Galilee, and this is close to Galilee. And he went down there, and, and John was prophesying, and he's, one day Jesus shows up, and John says, whoa, this is the guy I've been talking about, and I'm not even worthy of untying his sandal. He, this is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. And Jesus says, well, you need to baptize me, and John says, I am not worthy to baptize you, plus why would I do that? And Jesus says, no, you just need to do it so that all righteousness be fulfilled. You just need to do it. Just trust me. So John baptizes him, and he comes out of the water, and, uh, and the most amazing thing happens is God shows up, right? And the Holy Spirit comes down. I'm going to show you a, a, a picture of of where this this event might have taken place now i think that dove was photoshopped but everything else (laughs) this is not our group last time we came maybe if you come with us we can have a big group like this but it was this is what it looks like it's down there and that water is disgusting as it looks it's dull green and nasty but it's amazing right and what a pretty layer but you see all the those sides and how all those people could be there and when you're on the water you can hear uh folks on the shore they can hear you it's amazing and uh this it's where John the Baptist would, would have had his ministry, where Jesus would have gone into the water, would have come up. And of course, that passage, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And the voice of heaven said, this is my son whom I love. and With him, I am well pleased. And I want you to notice the Trinity is present in this. You have God, the father speaking from heaven, God, the son in the water coming up, being baptized, God, the Holy Spirit alighting upon him. It's pretty amazing. Uh, I also want you to know there's a threefold affirmation that God the Father gives him. The first one, this is my son, he belongs, right? Like he's legit, right? Whom I love, that God the Father loves this guy, right? He's, this is not like Jesus is not doing something in opposition to God. He's not at war with God or anything like that. They're close, and he's well pleased with him. That what Jesus is doing is the right thing. And another passage, it says, listen to him, which I was almost going to do that one, but I, it made it too small on this. But the other passages... Uh, that talk about this event, that we're supposed to, he has, been a, he has been authorized by God to do ministry. And so, at this point, Jesus' public ministry begins. And the first thing he does is that Holy Spirit alighted upon him, he followed him. And where did he follow him into? Well, the wilderness. And where was that? Well, it could be, if you went south, it would have been in that area we called the uh, 
uh, Idumea, right, th down there, or if you go to the northern portion, it'd be just go out into the wilderness, which is basically the desert, and that's where the devil was. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he didn't eat or drink, which means the Holy Spirit had to provide for him. That's miraculous. You can't not drink for 40 days. But Jesus was out there, and uh, God allowed him to survive that. And at the end of that, or a part of it, the devil shows up, and the very first thing the Holy Spirit does is leads Jesus into temptation right? Leads him to face the devil. That's the boss battle at the very first level of the game, right? That's, that's the hardest thing. He fights the devil right off the front. And the devil gives him these temptations. And he's like, hey, if you're the son of God, I bet you're hungry. Why don't you turn this bread? Uh, there's these rocks in the bread. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to use my power for that. It's been written, man's not supposed to live by bread alone. So then the devil's like, oh, so then the devil takes him to the temple, to the high part of the temple, and says, hey, if you're really the son of God, it says in the Word, we're talking about Bible now, you want to use the Bible, here's the Bible, it says that God's not going to let his holy one get hurt, right? He's going to send his angel to protect you. So just prove it, just jump off of this, everyone will see, the angels pick you up, and then everyone will worship you, right? Just, just shortcut this. Jesus says, you know what, yeah, but it's also written, not supposed to put the Lord God to the test. I thought, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing how Jesus, he, he goes and he, he addresses the Satan right where the devil had his, uh, I think finally devil's just like, you know, all right, let's just cut to the chase here. I know what you came to do. You want to be savior of the world, Messiah, all that kind of stuff, right? Messiah is like the big king, boss, all that kind of stuff. But we know the word says you're going to be suffering, right? Here's the deal. I won't fight back. I'll let you have all the kingdoms of the world. I'll let you just have them, right? All these people, right? You can have them. Just worship me. And Jesus Weak, tired, and frustrated, knowing that this was the beginning of the suffering of his ministry, says, you know, it's written, I'm going to worship God alone. And the devil realized that he was no match for Jesus. At his weakest, he was still better than the devil in his strength. And the devil flees and runs off, probably in the wilderness, go cry to his mommy. He doesn't, I don't know who that, that devil does, but, right? So that ends, and then God sends his angels down, and they feed Jesus and, and take care of him. And the next we see Jesus, he's going to a wedding party, right? Because you go from... The wilderness to a wedding, that's just kind of ministry, isn't it? So, so there he is, and there's Cana. I think Cana actually is five miles north of this, tell Cana, but we'll just use the, their map, right? So he goes up into Cana, and there's a wedding going on, and everyone's having a great time, too great of a time because they run out of wine. And Jesus' mom comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, they don't have any wine. And he says, listen, woman, it's not my time yet. And and then she's like, hey, to the servants, do what he says. Because she knew he was going to do, because uh, he's a good kid. And he's like 30-some years old, right? And he's all this. So he says, all right, get some of these big water things that you have there that's like purified water, like for your, and it's these stone massive things that were 25 gallons each. Fill them up with water. And so they do. And then all of a sudden it's wine. And it's not just wine. It's like fantastic wine. And you'd say, why so much wine? Because I did the math on that. <laughs> That's like 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine for a, I, I don't know how many people went to these Jewish parties, but I doubt it was that. That's like 1,000 a a plus bottles of wine. Why? And I thought of it. You know that wine in the Bible oftentimes talks about it's, it's God's blessing. It says, like, when we go into the land, that's the land of milk and honey, well, other things it says is, like, that land when we're there, it's going to be so rich, you could tie your donkey around, like, your richest wine vine, uh, grape vines, right? And, like, wine would just, like, ooze out of the rocks because God's blessing is just so, it saturates the area. When Jesus begins his ministry, I think it's so cool. He starts it with this. 
It's not just a little bit of a blessing. It's abundant, over-the-top craziness. It's not just like second-rate $5 bottle wine. This is like the best. That the Savior of the world came into this world as an abundant blesser. He is the largest and the biggest blessing of all time. After Jesus does this, everyone's amazed. And then Jesus goes to his hometown, which for the rest of his ministry, basically, is going to be in Capernaum. Now, in that time, he picks up a couple disciples. He's got uh, John, and uh, is in there. Peter, Andrew uh, is in that. Nathaniel, he picks them up and says, hey, follow me. And that's really what he's been saying ever since. And it's what he said to you and to me, by the way. Follow me. It's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So what about this thing? What do we learn from this, th- this first 30 years? The first thing I think is that Jesus is real, and so is our faith. Now, when you follow Jesus, it's not, a, it's not a make-believe story. It's not like we're just listening to some guy who went into a cave that says, trust me, I talked to an angel, and he told me to write these things, and he gave me some cool goggles or something. I got these fancy plates, right? This is not how it works. God showed up, and he's not kidding, because when God leaves heaven to go be born in a cave, I think he means business, and he faced the devil in, in real time and real space. I think he, he, he meant business in that. When Jesus showed up, he didn't come so that we could have a comfortable little life that we could just say, well, I'm going to subscribe to some of your teachings and do whatever I want the rest of it. No, God left heaven and he went to earth for you and for me. Our faith is real. It is not a game. I, the first thing we have to understand this when we go to it, it should make your hairs stand up that the divine became mortal. In real time and real space so that we could live our lives in real time and real space with real purpose and real meaning. This is something profound that I think we need to get. We can't be on the sidelines and we can't play footsie with God. He showed up and he said, guess what? I'm coming again. And guess what? When Jesus comes again, he's going to come again just as real. It's not going to be some spiritual pie in the sky little thing. He's going to show up with a loud shout and a big trumpet and everyone's going to their pants because it's going to be crazy. This is not small stuff. You're not going to deny it. All of the rules of the world, everybody who's denied Jesus is going to see God return just as real. And I will say this, he's given us a short period of time, just like he did with John, to say, get ready. Get ready. It's what he sent us in this world to do. It's what he gave us the Holy Spirit for. He's given us a lot of other things. We're going to learn about this. He says, when I come back, I better find you busy. I better find you working. I better find you building my kingdom. Something what I find in this is our faith is real. And the rest of this summer, this is not storybook time. I'm not giving you little carpet squares and giving you little graham crackers and chalky milk. We're going to get real with God. Because this real God showed up and he told us real things that he's going to really hold us accountable to. So let's know this stuff. I think something else we find in this is that Jesus faced resistance. And so will we. The most false teachers in the church right now teach a gospel that says God wants you just to be comfortable and wealthy and happy. Is that Jesus? Was he comfortable, wealthy, happy? How about John the Baptist? Did that go real well for him? How about Peter? Was he comfortable, wealthy, happy? I imagine you talked to him when he was hanging on that cross. And you say, I'm content. I'm faithful because I'm not living for this life. I want you to understand this. Every prophet, every disciple had to suffer for Jesus. If we become a Christian so our lives get better on this life, you have missed the point. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, 
and follow me. You got to get real with Jesus. He's not here because he just makes your life better. He gives you life. Understand that. And it's going to cost you something. You're going to be denial of yourself. If your Christianity has been to this comfortable thing, I'm going to go to a church that makes me feel good, and I'm going to do things that make me feel good and things that pay into me, then that's all I'm going to do. You've missed the point. You have to take up your cross daily. You have to deny yourself. And God himself did that for us. And if you think that our faith is here, to, so if you're going to pray and you're just going to get all of your diseases taken away and your bank account's going to be full and you're just going to walk around in clouds all the time, you've got it wrong. And somebody's lied to you. It's not why Jesus came. If that was the case, he would have accepted the devil's offer. Don't accept the devil's offer. Say, you know what, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to follow him. And it may cost me something. It may cost me everything. But it's worth it. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Third thing that we have here is that Jesus followed the Holy Spirit, and so did his disciples. If you're following yourself into this faith, you're following your heart, what your heart wants to tell you to do, I guess, guess you're missing the point. You're missing the best thing. Jesus followed the Holy Spirit. When, 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 when he was baptized, first thing he does is follow the Holy Spirit. And where does the Holy Spirit tell him to go? They tell him to go to Denny's and you know, have a nice little surprise party or something like that because it was all happy because he got baptized? No, sent him to the wilderness to fight the devil. When you follow the Holy Spirit, sometimes he sends you to places that you would never have imagined. Sometimes he leads you into suffering. He certainly did that for me, but you know, guess what? When the Holy Spirit leads you there, he's also there with you. And he shows up big. And he can do things in your life like, like he did for Jesus, allowed him to live for 40 days without liquid. Right? God can do the impossible in your life. Everyone says, I want to see a miracle in my life. Follow the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has spoken to us in his word. He lives in our hearts and our lives. We need to be following him. As a church, if we're not following the Holy Spirit, we're doing our own things, we're going to die. But if we're following the Holy Spirit, we are with God and with the power of God is then with us because we are with him. How do you follow the Holy Spirit? You need to know the word. You need to pray. You need to stop saying, God, I want you to bless me. And you have to start praying, God, I want to be a blessing to you because God will answer that prayer. And here's the amazing thing. All this suffering and all the denial and all of that, Jesus says, and even the word says that, that Jesus, he laid himself low, and guess what God did? He elevated him, gave him a name above every other name. And God is able to give you a life and a name and, and a purpose and an integrity and a joy that this world could never, ever give you. He offers so much more. But we have to recognize that, that he's real, that, that it's, we have to recognize there's going to be resistance in this and we have to be willing to follow the Holy Spirit. But if we do that, there's some really great things. And that's when we're talking about the rest of the series. Following Jesus, what did he do? What did he call us into? Because this is an adventure. It's not a vacation, but it is incredible. And that's what we'll be starting next week, starting the very first part of Jesus' earthly ministry. So now, what do you do? Because I've given you a lot and I know it went over a little over, but that's too bad. All right, so here's some things <laughs> that we're going to do. First one, memorize... Memorize our, our, our memory verse, right? Matthew 16, 24. It's on your connection card. You have to know this. This is how you're going to answer the enemy, right? This is how you answer the devil when he tells you that Jesus came to make your life comfortable, that there is no cost to it. This is a low-risk type thing. No. Jesus said, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Use the word of God like Jesus did. The devil will flee, right? Get it. Also, read the passages I told you. If you have a harmony of the Gospels, what it means, it takes all those four Gospels and it lays them over each other so you can kind of read 
basically one long narrative. It's really great. That's what we're going to be following through. If you have one of those, it's great. You can order one online. If not, I put the, the text on your connection card, what we went through today. That's Matthew 1 through 2, uh, and also chapter 4, a little bit in chapter 4, Mark 1, Luke 1 through 2, and John 1. If you do this through the, through the next 12 weeks, you'll have read all of Jesus' life, which is pretty cool. So um, just little bite-sized things. Something else to do. Start talking to God. Pray for direction, right? And this needs to be a prayer for all of us at all times. I guarantee Jesus didn't think the Holy Spirit, the first thing he was going to do is lead him away from the Holy Land. I mean, he led him the exact opposite direction. He led him right to the devil's door. But it's exactly where Jesus needed to be. Wherever you are in your life right now, don't think that you know what God has for you. We have to be talking to him, don't we? So would you take time this week and say, God, Whatever it is that you want from me, I trust it's better than what I want for myself. I trust that what you want is greater than what I would choose for myself. Please give me direction. Let's do that as a church so that we are a people that's following the Holy Spirit. Something else you can also do is join our, our Bible study, which is going to be next hour, which is going to be starting in about 15 minutes or five minutes because I went long, um, right here, and we're going to be going through the book of Acts. If you want to learn how to study scripture so you know what it says, Come join us this summer, and uh, Caleb's doing a great job teaching us not just the Word, but how to study the Word together. All right, so that's all the stuff. Put your connections or your your commitments on your connection card. Let's uh, put your prayer requests on there, because we do pray for you. God does do awesome things when we talk to Him. And at the end of the message, uh, this time we'll have one song, and then drop those off in that box there at the back of this uh, room right here. Uh, I would appreciate with your tithes and your offerings. All right, let's pray. Father God, you are amazing and good. You are loving and kind, and you're also real. In fact, that's how you identify yourself. You are the I am, (laughs) because you are. So, Father, we come to worship you because you truly do exist. You are a real God, and we thank you that you sent Jesus into this world, a real time and real space. Father, I pray that our faith would be just as real, that we would put flesh to that faith in our lives as we follow after Christ. Give us the courage to face the adversity that lies before us, but as you also lead us through your Holy Spirit, I pray that you you bless, protect, and, and equip each one of these members, Father, with your Holy Spirit to, to do the ministry you're calling us to do faithfully so that your kingdom can come, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we've made commitments today. Help us to keep those in a way that draws our hearts and our spirits and our lives closer to yours. Father, we pray that you take our tithes and offerings as a symbol of our worship, us centering our lives on you in every area that we live. Lord, in all of this, we pray that you would be loved and you would glorified. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.